Good morning, Renaissance fam. My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors. Uh, so grateful to be with everybody today. A couple of years ago, uh, I stumbled into a new, what I hope is a new tradition for me and my sons. A couple of years ago, I took my son away for a father-son trip and with some dads, other dads from Renaissance, and we went to a cabin upstate. And last year, I tried to replicate that. And I tried to take my son away for a couple of days and spend some time one-on-one -on -one with him. Really, my hope and my prayer is that I'm able to help nurture what a real, vibrant faith looks like. And so last year, I was doing a wedding out in L.A., and um, while we were in L.A., we did all the obligatory things that you do with a seven-year-old. Uh, we got some legit tacos. Yes, Lord. Um, I'm a big fan of New York food, but the tacos in New York City, man, we just, the Lord needs to meet us in another way in uh, New York City. <laughs> and uh, we went to Disneyland, which for him was really one of the most joyous days of his life. And, you know, one of the things I've learned over the years is like, Seeing his joy was so infectious, and it made me so happy watching him happy. While we were there, though, I called my wife. I said, listen, don't look at the credit card statement, because the way, because the way Disneyland is set up, you're going to just be surprised. Just, uh... But while we were there doing different things, every morning we'd go get bagels, and they're not that good, but the donuts in uh, Cali were really good. And we were going through the Lord's Prayer together. And so every meal, we would take a line of the Lord's Prayer, and I would just ask him, like, hey, buddy, what do you think about this? So for those of you who grew up in church or Catholic school or whatever, many of you know the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us of our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then we got to the last line, which for me really was one of the most profound times I had with him. And it says, and do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, in a lot of ways, trying to explain temptation to a seven-year-old was a really beautiful thing. Because in a lot of ways, he's a lot more objective than I am. When you and I hear the word temptation, we think of sex. But to a seven-year-old, hopefully in most cases, that's something that they're not even, it doesn't even register on their radar just yet. And so we started talking about what it means to be tempted, and I felt like this seven-year-old breaking down theology for me was better than a seminarian sipping coffee somewhere else. Because he got to discuss and talk about temptation from something that I think more closely resembled what Jesus was trying to get at. What is temptation? Temptation is referred to all throughout the Bible as a form of seduction, not necessarily for sex. I mean, that's one small, small, small slither of what it means. But essentially, all temptation is meant to take you away from faithfulness to God and put it on something else. It's meant to take your eyes away from the goodness of God and focus on something else. It's meant to make you take the truth of God and accept and embody and be persuaded by something else. And so, as we were talking about um, temptation, um, today we're be, we'll be diving deeply into this conversation, particularly as it pertains to the way we see our lives and the way we see our work. But I want to talk about three things about temptation before we even hop deeply into the scripture. Number one, temptation almost always brings you back to yourself. Temptation is always about selfishness. 
Have you ever noticed that you've never been tempted to do something selfless? You've never woken up on a Saturday morning and been like, yo, I'm just so tempted to help my friend move right now. Oh, get those moving truck yoke. If I see that U-Haul, I'm out. Temptation is always about you. It's always about you doing what you want to please you. It's always about you fulfilling your own, in those moment, desires. One of the things that I've noticed, if you were to like really zoom out from the Bible, and let's just say you're not a Bible scholar, you don't read all these different things, here's what the Bible says the greatest sin is. The greatest sin would be to ignore the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is not about what you're doing tangentially. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. The second greatest commandment is similar to that. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And so the greatest temptation would be to take your eyes, your diligence, your obedience away from the greatest two commands and to make it all about self-indulgence. Instead of loving God and loving others, you would just be loving yourself. So number one thing about temptation is it almost always brings us back to ourselves. Number two, I think it's a really profound truth about temptation. Everybody's temptation is different. You know, it's humbling and embarrassing to admit at times that all of us carry around certain susceptibility to temptation. Your temptations are not mine and mine are not yours. So the second truth about temptation is that you and I are most susceptible to temptations in areas of insecurity. You are most tempted in the area that you are already insecure. You know, I mentioned this uh, last service. When Renaissance first started, my wife and I really tried to put pillars in place to help us thrive. One of those pillars was a Sabbath, and it's a weekly period of 24 hours where Jordan Rice wasn't producing. And my goal was to disassociate myself with doing more and more work so that I would not be a robot, that I would not be a human doing, I would be a human being. And for the most part, I tried my best to keep that rule in place. But there were times when I was tempted to blow through the Sabbath and just do work. And the greatest temptation to do that came at my greatest insecurity. You know, when I first started preaching at Renaissance, um, I probably only had preached maybe like 10 or 15 times in my life. And I remember like early in 2014, um, standing right over there behind those curtains and being like so miserable and thinking like, why am I doing this for a job? I don't like this. Like, I don't like to stand in front of a crowd and do this because I was so nervous, because I was so insecure. I felt like every single message had to be that I have a dream speech. It had to be so profound. And in my ignorance and, you know, being naive to preaching, um, the challenge was this. I followed the temptation to overwork, which did harm to me. It did harm to me as a way I parented. It did harm to my relationship just because I was insecure. So in your areas of your life, you are most susceptible to temptations in areas of insecurity. Here's what James says. He says, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own desire, your own desire, something that is personal to you that is not necessarily shared by everyone else and enticed. Number three, truth about temptation. Here's, a, here's a, one of the most insidious lies. The power of all temptation is the prospect 
that it will make me happier. If I do this, irrespective of what scripture says, irrespective of what the people around me who love me say, I'll just be happier. And the biggest lie about temptation, the biggest lie that this temptation does to us, to think that we'll be happier by ignoring scripture, wisdom, uh, those relationships that we, we hold so close, is that many of you have been in this pursuit of happiness and you've never found it. Part of the reason you never found it is because happiness, happiness by itself should, is always a, a, a byproduct of something else. Right? So if you're shooting for happiness, you're always going to miss. If you shoot for faithfulness, for purpose, for meaning, you might get happiness as, as well. And so the power of all temptation in your life, the areas that the enemy wants to tempt you, is with the prospect that you will be happier if you do it your way and not God's way. Now, the Bible is not anti-desire. The Bible in Jesus is not anti-happiness. God wants you in appropriate times to be happy. Um, but the power of something to tempt you is based on how enticing it is. Look at the scripture back in Genesis 3. It says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. Look at those words, delightful, desirable. So she took some of it, of its fruit and ate it, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So listen to this. Temptation is about persuasion, convincing you that going against God's way is better. So I want us to look at Scripture today, and I want us keeping these truths about temptation at the front of your mind, particularly as you consider your, your work, the thing that you do for 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week. I want you thinking about the temptations that you have to bring everything back to yourself. Last week, we talked about these four uh, things that are so pervasive in our society, self-fulfillment, self-advancement, self-preservation, and self-promotion. And I want you thinking about how the Lord is inviting us into obedience instead of self-fulfillment, purpose instead of self-advancement, faithfulness instead of self-preservation, and humility instead of self-promotion. So I want us thinking about the temptations that we have in our life um, to bring everything back to self, right? So self-fulfillment, self-advancement, self-preservation, and self-promotion. Now, very briefly, we've been talking about this series because we want to teach people how does following Jesus make its way into every single crevice in your life? Not just Sunday morning when we're singing a song, but how does it make its way into your life on Monday? And part of the way it does is by um, avoiding these temptations that we have at work. So to be a Christian at work, to follow Jesus at work, is not just talking to people about Jesus. It's also rejecting the values of this world that are not aligned to him. So I, want you, I also want you thinking about your own areas of insecurity, uh, the thing that you might not say to anybody else out loud, but the, the things that you know you're insecure about because these might be doorways into how you and I can be enticed and dragged away from God and his will for our lives. And I want you to, to be thinking about the things that you believe right now. If this could change about your job, I would just be happier. All right, so um, Matthew 4 uh, is a scripture in uh, the New Testament. It's one of the most seminal, important scriptures in the entire Bible. 
If you've been around Renaissance for a little bit, you've heard us talk about this scripture. You're going to hear us talk about this over and over again. It is one of the most profound teachings in the Bible. And it's an encounter where Jesus himself is tempted by the enemy. And very briefly, I know we got a lot of sophisticated people in this room, a lot of degrees. Um, and a lot of times when you think about the concept of a devil, for some people, it's just like, well, that's just what people believed thousands of years ago. But we know better now. We have science. We have different explanations for things. This is just something that people believed before they were enlightened. And if that's what you believe, I just want to caution you to this one thing. If you're too smart to believe in the devil, if you're too wise to believe in the devil, then you're wiser than Jesus. Because Jesus often taught that there is a real adversary. There is an accuser. There is a liar. There is someone who is trying to persuade you and pull you away from God and his will for your life. So even if you have a, a, a challenge to believe in that, I want you to kind of hold that loosely and follow us today. So Matthew 4, Jesus is teaching, and he says, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus, they're describing Jesus' temptation, and it says in Matthew 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Very briefly before uh, we even excavate more of the scripture, Matthew is very cautious to let us know in this detail for a couple of reasons, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Partly what Matthew is trying to communicate to you is that temptation doesn't happen to someone because you got God. Like nobody just gets um, overpowered by the enemy. And Jesus never got overpowered by the enemy. He was led by the Spirit to be tempted. After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first temptation that we're going to see here in the scripture, a temptation that is going to follow you uh, around every job interview, it's going to follow you tomorrow morning, both in your work and in your relationships at home, is this, that I am what I do. The temptation to believe that you are the sum total of your activity. And if you do more, you are more. If you have a better job, then you are better. The first temptation is that you are what you do. So very carefully, let's look at these scriptures if you were to rewind this text just a couple of verses, you'll see that Jesus had just been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. Jesus had gotten baptized by his cousin, and it says, as, as Jesus arose from the water, an audible voice came out from heaven and said, this is my son. This is God the Father speaking a declaration over his son. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. What does the enemy do in these first verses in Matthew 4? He turns God's declarative statement into a question. If you are the son of God, then you'll do these things. One of the ways that the enemy tries to manipulate us is to take the settled nature of what God has spoken over us and make it conditional. And so we're always trying to earn an identity. And one of the ways that he's trying to make Jesus earn an identity, the one that the father has already given him, is by doing something and doing something impressive. If you are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. Jesus resists that temptation, and he says, It is written, 
Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I've used that scripture to talk about things like our, our need to hear God's voice daily, our need to have time with God in scripture, and those are all true things. But bigger than that, what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 4 and 4 is that your greatest need is to have a settledness that what God says about you is enough and that you are not what you do. Now, here's why it's so um, really devastating to you if you were to believe that you are what you do. If you believe that you are what you do, our culture holds two values, both of which are really harmful to you at the same time. Number one, our culture really treats us like our accomplishments are temporary, but it makes our failures permanent. So if your value is in what you do, then at best, all you're going to be doing is running on the hamster wheel of temporary success and trying to avoid failure because we treat it as, as permanent, as something that's irredeemable. You know, um, years and years ago, uh, on the set of one of the biggest movies at the time, uh, The Bodyguard with uh, a woman named Whitney Houston, and uh, Gen Z, y'all know Whitney Houston, a singer? <laughs> Bobby Brown, y'all know Whitney and Bobby? that? <laughs> Anyway, she was uh, on set, and uh, the co-star, Kevin Costner, who I'm not even going to try to describe to uh, <laughs> my Gen Z folks in the room, uh, he was an actor as well, and uh, <laughs> he goes searching for Whitney Houston on set. And at this time, I mean, Whitney Houston was the biggest star, probably one of the biggest stars in the world. And she's sitting on set, and nobody can find her. So they're going to her trailer, all these different rooms, and they finally find her and they say, Whitney, like, we're, we've been calling for so long. I mean, we're about to start recording. And she's looking off into space and she says, I wonder if they'll like me. Like, I wonder if I'm good enough. And it's like, yo, you are Whitney Houston. If you singing is not good enough, nobody singing is good enough. Why, why was she struggling with that? Because all of the accomplishments that she had, and she had accomplishments for days and days, they were temporary. They were fleeting. You know, one of the biggest lies that makes us embrace this temptation is that if I, if I just got this next thing, I'd finally be settled. But it never happens. Uh, an author by the name of Adam Adler, he says it like this. When you approach life as a sequence of milestones to be achieved, you exist in a state of near-continuous failure. Almost all the time, by definition, you're not at the place you've defined as embodying accomplishment or success. And should you get there, you'll find that you've lost the very thing that gave you a sense of purpose. So you'll formulate a new goal and start again. You know, that, that quote stopped me like a... Stopped me dead in my tracks the first time I read it because I felt like he was talking to me. You know, for so much of my, my life, even as a pastor, I felt like who I was was dependent on what I was doing and how well I was doing, how much, how well I was performing as a pastor. And it, he's right that I was existing in the state of almost near continuous failure. Because like one of the worst feelings on the planet is reaching a milestone that you thought was going to make you happy and then you find out that it doesn't. 
Now you're just completely disillusioned because now, and then sometimes we go through the, the madness of just adding another milestone to that. And so this is a way that the enemy wants to split you. One of the other terms for um, the devil is a splitter. And by convincing you that you are what you do, he will split you from the relationships that God has called you to thrive in. He will split you from God's love and God's settledness over your life. So let's take it to our modern-day jobs. One of the reasons that so many of us struggle with our jobs or our job titles is because we just don't feel like it's enough. Why do we struggle so much with that? I think we struggle with that because we believe we are what we do. You know, I'll be out talking to someone, and some people will just say, oh, I do this, I do this. And I get this all the time from people who feel bad about their jobs, and they just say, oh, I'm, I'm just a... I'm just a this. I'm I'm just a waiter. I'm just this. I'm just... Deep down inside, they are believing the temptation that I am what I do, and I'm lesser than. Now, when Jesus came to earth, Jesus worked regular jobs as a a mason, and the apostles worked regular jobs, making tents and doing regular things. One of the things we've been trying to discuss in this entire sermon series is that God sees all of our work as beautiful, potentially really beautiful and valid, if it is done in recognition of him and in service to others. So if you're flipping burgers, if you're waiting tables, if you're starring on Broadway, whatever it is, that or anything in between, it can have immense value if we're doing it in service of him and for other people, keeping them in mind. So number one temptation is I am what I do. Number two, second temptation, uh, we see this in uh, verses five through eight. Uh, It says, then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will give his angels orders concerning you. They will support you with their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus told him, it is also written, do not test the Lord your God. Now, the second lie we see here in Scripture, this temptation, is that I am what other people think of me. I am what other people think of me. Now, let me give you a little bit of a context of the Scripture. In ancient cities, they were literally built around the temple. So the temple was the centerpiece of their city. It was visible from every crevice of the city. So what the devil does to Jesus, he says, yo, go to the pinnacle of the temple and put on a show. And you're going to put on a show that's so dazzling to everybody, they're going to see you jump off and the angels are going to come out of heaven. They're going to grab you and you're not even going to scrape your big toe against one of these rocks. And when you do this, yo, everybody is going to look at you with so much amazement that you have put on this wonderful performance for everyone. The temptation is to try to get Jesus unsuccessfully to believe that he is what other people think of him. And this is why this temptation happens in this way, to be a public display for Jesus to gain influence. Now, Jesus' miracles were never done to show off. They were done to show his power, but it was never self-serving. So what the enemy is doing to Jesus and what he has done to us many times is to try to get us to prove our self-worth, to prove our identity and who who we are by what other people think of us. You know, one of the things I love about Jesus, and it's a part about Jesus' ministry that I am so far away from, I hope and long to be here one day. Jesus truly never cared what people thought of him. 
He'd be preaching a sermon to thousands of people, and everybody would walk away. Then he would go to the 12 people that were still there and was like, yo, do y'all want to leave too? He didn't need anybody to validate him because he knew he was valid. My biggest fear is that for so many people, you are disgruntled, dissatisfied, frustrated with your work because it's not impressive when you tell other people. We're letting other, we're, we're letting other people's opinions of us hold us hostage. Now, I'm a big fan of you pursuing your passions. I'm a big fan of doing work that's, that's good and meaningful and amazing. And if you get success, yo, praise the Lord. For those of you who are striving to make it on Broadway, give me tickets when you get there. <laughs> like, I, hope you, I, I do hope you get there. But if you don't get on Broadway, like if you don't, are you less than because all of the things didn't break your way? If you never make it to partner in the firm, if you're never tenured as a professor and your work doesn't get, is not world renowned, then what? Are you a failure? Are you what other people think of you? And if it is, when will you know that you've done a good enough job? Will you ever find a settled state where you can get the chorus of opinions to all be in concert to agree that yes, you're doing phenomenally? Will that ever be permanent? Man, it's a temptation. It's a temptation for us to believe that we are what other people think of us. Now, you'll know this is you if your self-image soars with a compliment but is devastated by criticism. This is you. It could be revealed either in compliments or in criticism. If you go somewhere and you tell somebody what you do or you tell somebody something about you and they like everybody's loving it and you're like just feeling like you're on cloud nine, be careful. You might be believing that you are what other people think of you. And that is just a treadmill that I don't want any of us to be on, myself included. So number one, I am what I do. Number two, I am what other people think of me. Third temptation from the enemy is I am what I have. I am what I have. Verses 8 through 11, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all of these things if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus told him, Go away, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The last temptation is that we would believe that I am what I have. So Jesus was taken to see all the magnificence and the power of the earth. And basically the enemy goes to him and said, Jesus, look at, look at all of this. I can give it to you. Now, up to this point in Jesus's ministry, uh, this is the beginning of his ministry. So Jesus at this point had no followers, had no accomplishments, had no kingdoms, had nothing that he had done for himself. There was no acclaim. And so what he's pitching to Jesus is, I will give you all of these things. And it's a very, it's a dangerous lie that you and I will believe in. You know, a lot of times people believe that I am better in this job because I make more money. Or I am better because, or I am better or I'm more valuable because I'm making more. Now, quick side note, get the bag if you can get the bag. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, don't hear me say don't get the bag. Particularly if you uh, work in an environment where uh, 
because of your, your race or your gender, you, you're not getting paid as much as other people. Nah, fight for that, get that bag. It is a dangerous lie, though, when we believe that our value rises, that you are more important because you're making more money. And this is really evident in the way that people get treated all throughout New York City. People with more money get treated better. And so this is, you know, something that we see not just in adults, but also in kids. You know, I remember years ago talking to my niece about this new iPhone that she wanted. And, you know, it was like one of her first phones. I was like, oh, like, which one do you want? And she wanted like the Pro Max edition. I was like, mama, you're not getting that. You're going to get an old used iPhone from, from your aunts. This is like the joint that the screen got 900 cracks in it. That's the one you're going to start out with. And when I was asking her about the phone, I was like, oh, like, what features do you want in this phone? And she couldn't even tell the features. So it wasn't that she wanted more megapixels for the camera. She just wanted to be able to walk into school and floss to her friends like, yo, look what I have. Now, fortunately, most of us who are adults in this room uh, don't belittle ourselves in those ways. However, that same ethos is inside of us. We feel better when we have more. And so essentially all of these temptations are about installing a value system in you that Christians should wholeheartedly reject if we are going to find meaning and purpose and value in our work. So values that um, we believe that our value is tied to the amount of our paycheck or value is when we're doing something that's exciting and other people want to hear about it at dinner parties or that our value is tied to how immediately it impacts the world, or our value is tied to our recognition, or our value is tied to our success. If we've done a really good job, then we are really valuable, or our value is based on our affiliation. Now, if you take these things into your workplace, you will struggle to live as a Christian in work, because this is an operating system. This is a value system that is rooted in lies from the pit of hell. One of the things that the, the Bible teaches us is that value is not based on achievement, but based on relationship. Now, y'all know me, I love kicks. And um, right now, really the most important person in the whole sneaker industry is Marcus Jordan, Michael Jordan's son. And he is on his Instagram. His Instagram is airmjheir. MJ, and he's realized a deep theological truth about himself, that his value doesn't depend on what he's done. I think he might have played one year D1 and never continued. He is the heir to the most profitable sneaker brand on the planet. And his value is not tied to his achievement. It's tied to his relationship. Christianity always talks about you and your value, not tied to your achievement, but based on your relationship, that we have an inheritance. We are heirs to the promise. And simply because Marcus Jordan is the son to the second best basketball player of all time, his status, his, that joke never gets old, man. I really love it. It's like my favorite. His status in the sneaker game, this is best sneakers though. It's the best, I mean, it's the best sneakers hands down. His status is secure. Listen to this. He could walk into any room any room in this planet with sneakers and they part in the Red Sea for this dude. He's never touched the NBA court. He's never done any of these things on his own. Listen to this. 
He has a settledness in his life that I aspire to, unbothered, because he knows to whom he belongs. I don't think we know who we belong to. We go after our jobs searching for affirmation in all the wrong places because we're desperately seeking after some value that has already been given to us. One of my favorite books of the Bible, 1 John, the writer John is writing these words, and I can hear him getting excited. He says, oh, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. Here's what Jesus has come to do for us. Jesus, God has created us for good. In our sin and rebellion, we have all turned away from God. God, instead of treating us the way our sins demanded they be treated, God comes down in the person of Jesus to go to the cross for our sins and invites us to receive him. Scripture says in John that to all who have received him, to them, he, became, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And so if you have placed your faith in Christ, I want you basking in these truths that God saw fit to give you his best in Jesus Christ. And that is value. And if you live like that actually matters, you'll be a Christian that stands out in your workplace. For those of you who have never responded in faith to what it means to give your life to Jesus, my hope and my prayer is either uh, today during the uh, our prayer time after service or speaking to one of our pastors or leaders that you would have the opportunity to respond to Jesus in faith. Let me pray for us. Lord, you know how quickly I am to believe that my value is tied to what I do or what other people think about me and I want more influence and visibility or that I am what I have and I'm better if I have more. And Lord, it's because I've lost sight. I've lost sight of you. I've lost sight of your sacrifice. I've lost sight of Jesus. Jesus, don't let the enemy split us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.